Well, after, uh, after one year and uh, over 50 sermons and one global pandemic later, we are at the end of the book of Luke. I don't know where you were at the beginning of this, and I don't know where some of you are at the end either, but hopefully this morning we'll uh, get to know each other a little bit better. There was a, there's a big goal all throughout this sermon series. Um, the goal that Luke had for his audience, you've probably heard it repeated a few times. Um, it's the same goal that the Grace Fellowship preaching team has had for you. Here's the goal. That you might have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Why is that so important? Why does Luke make such a big deal about that all through? Why does he lay it out in the first chapter and carry it through to the end? I think it's because if you're certain about who Jesus is and what he came to do, well, it's going to completely change how you think, how you feel, and what you do. I mean, this was exactly what happened to Jesus' followers, right? I mean, when he opened their eyes to the scriptures, and when people looked on him and they saw their resurrected Savior, they were ready for their mission. They were certain. Now, I can't open your eyes, but uh, I can open the book of Luke once more as we wrap up. And I ask you the same question. Are you certain? If so, I think you'll see three evidences in your life, and they're on your outline. First, you will be able to define the mission of Jesus. You'll be able to say it correctly, understand what it is. Uh, Second, you'll be able to defend the authenticity of Jesus from Scripture and from history. And third, and perhaps the most obvious application, you will declare the gospel of Jesus. So you'll be able to define, defend, and declare. So first, define the mission of Jesus. What was it? Luke gives us a few answers. I mean, first... The first part of the mission was Jesus brought a kingdom of salvation through faith. That's what he came to bring. That's the deliverable. And it was spelled out right in chapter 1. An angel told Mary concerning the baby Jesus, perhaps you remember this, the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And the word kingdom kept showing up. And later in chapter 1, a man named Zechariah added this to the kingdom in his prophecy. He said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And a few verses after that, he said he will give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of God. So you get it? 
everlasting kingdom is coming, and it's all about salvation. It's not about political revolution. It's not about economic prosperity. It is about the forgiveness of sins because of God's tender mercy. And we get even more about that in chapter 2 as the angels announce Jesus' birth, calling this good news for all people. In other words, this new kingdom of salvation would not just be about Israel. That will come up a lot later, as it came up a lot throughout Luke. So all of this shows us, as we think about all that, it shows us not only what Jesus' kingdom of salvation is, but actually it tells us how somebody receives it. I mean, think about it. If it's all done by Jesus, it's a gift. If it's something he's bringing in. And so, it simply must be received. That's where faith comes in. It's received by faith. Can I just show you an example from Luke about kind of what receiving this kingdom looks like? It's one of my favorite stories. It was in chapter 7, and this is what happens. A woman of the city, who's nameless, she's just described as a sinner, she enters into a dinner party kind of awkwardly, and Jesus has been invited to this, and she pours expensive perfume on his feet, And then she dries it with her hair. And she won't stop crying. You remember that? And the religious leaders there, in fact, I think probably all of them, were just a little bit taken aback. You might even say they were offended by this woman's act of faith. And here's Jesus' reply. Ties us right back into the salvation. Here's what Jesus says in chapter 7 as he looks down to this woman who's probably still wiping his feet. Do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table began to say among themselves, who is this who forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. That's the kingdom of salvation, right there. These are the kinds of people that Jesus invites in. People whose faith is in him alone. I mean, do you get that? This is, this is the mission. He is the king of this great new kingdom, and it's coming in. And it's full of people who are restored to God who have their sins forgiven, and they get in by faith because they think much of him. And I think we can add by inference, they don't think very much of themselves. And it will change them now 
in this life, and it will certainly change them in the age to come. Anyone can get in. I mean, when I think about this, when I think about how little I deserve salvation, have you ever thought about that? You know, when you're kind of at your worst, or when somebody calls you out on something, and you go to passages like this, this moves me. I mean, imagine if your life was this woman's life. Imagine if you had the reputation and the social status that she had. No church wants to come within a mile of you, let alone six feet. They don't even want you in the house. But then, this guy who's doing miracles and he's talking of a new kingdom, he looks at you and he says, you have peace with God. Anybody can have this. But you'll notice, I didn't say everyone will have this. What about the offended people at the dinner party? What about people who look at this new kingdom and they say, eh, that's not for me. What do they get? They get judgment. And I know you saw a judgment in this book. <laughs> I mean, this is a book, the book of Luke, full of conflict. Because Jesus is ushering in this new kingdom, and that really bothers some people. It begins with Jesus' first sermon in chapter 4. I don't know if you remember that. But Jesus explains from the Old Testament that he is the promised Savior. And when people kind of push back on that, Jesus then compares himself to a prophet named Elijah, very beloved by his audience, who himself was rejected by Israel. And then instead of healing them, Elijah just goes somewhere else and heals their enemies. And when the people hear Jesus say this, they reject him. They try to kill him. And so what does Jesus do? He goes to Israel's enemies, the Samaritans, and he starts to build his kingdom there. Friends, the historical rejection of God's prophets by God's people just keeps happening in Luke. There's this conflict to this new kingdom coming in. Jesus is rejected by the Jews, and so he brings the exact same judgment to them that God has been dispensing throughout their history. He simply turns them over to, your sin, to their sin. They don't want God. He says, all right, I'll go somewhere else. In other words, people who are rejecting Jesus here in Luke are continuing down the same path, rejecting God. And that, my friends, invites judgment. But that's not the end. This pushback on Jesus, they don't get the final word. Because Jesus promises a future judgment too. He doesn't just leave the people who reject him and go somewhere else. He promises a future judgment. One great example 
in chapter 21, Jesus' disciples are admiring an extravagant Jewish temple. It's beautiful. And it's funded by the oppressed widows not to glorify God, but to reinforce the system set up by the same corrupt religious leaders who want Jesus dead. That's how this temple got built, by a bunch of people who really don't love Jesus. And because they don't love Jesus, they don't love God. And so what Jesus says in response to the disciples is this, the days will come when there will not be left here, the temple, one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So the coming destruction of Jerusalem, which actually does happen a few decades later, is predicted here. In other words, judgment is coming even after the cross. You get that? It's not this like happy event where everybody in the world gets it. No. Some people don't get it the whole way through and they're going to keep on not getting it. That will happen. And in this, in this judgment, we learn an aspect of Jesus' kingdom that is often and sadly minimized. I mean, yeah, Jesus does come to bring salvation to anyone by faith. Anyone can get in. Yes, God is so slow to anger that salvation was offered to Israel through Jesus even after their historical rebellion. But one day, judgment will come. The door is going to close. Do you feel the tension? There's tension of this new glorious kingdom of salvation. But there's a tension in that some won't get in. And this tension is why the third part of Jesus' mission is so important to get right. He suffered and died to complete it. In fact, he used the sin of his own people to finish his mission. He allowed himself to be killed to show them their sin and get them a way out of it. He uses Israel's rebellion culminated in their execution of Jesus to actually fulfill his mission. Jesus set his face towards this. You heard that phrase so much in the latter half of the book both before and after his death and resurrection in Luke 22 and 24, Jesus said, I must suffer. Israel had failed time and time again to give themselves totally to God. And so God gave himself on their behalf. That's the mission of Jesus. He came to bring a kingdom of salvation through faith. He came to bring judgment on those who reject God. And his mission was completed through suffering. How does this apply? Church, we have to be certain of this. We have to be certain that the only way 
to this kingdom of salvation is faith in Jesus. There's one way. We have to be certain of that. We have to be certain that judgment is coming for those who reject him. And we have to be certain that suffering was the means by which he completed his mission. Now, when you're reaching out to people, there's a a bit of a trend on social media to kind of be combative. Have you seen it? Memes and one-liners and standoffishness and people saying, I'll pray for you. You know they're not. When you're out there defining the mission of Jesus with people, enjoy them. Define the mission. As you're getting to know people, it's not this way in which you're leading with a punch in the face. Just define the terms as you're getting to know people. You're being friendly, especially now. Draw people out. Somebody says, yeah, I worship Jesus. Ask him questions. What do you mean? Somebody says, yeah, I don't worship that Jesus guy. What do you mean? Tell me about it. Don't just run away. Define the terms. Tell me more. Get used to saying that. Tell me more. Stop talking. Let them talk. Let them tell you the Jesus they worship. Be sure you're talking about the same Jesus. You might not be, and you have the chance to correct that. Number one, if they're a professing believer, but as you define the terms, it turns out that the Jesus they worship is way different. Now you know. Don't marry him. (laughs) Right? Don't just marry that girl because she can spell Jesus. Get to know her. Know the terms. Get to know that guy. Right? You're raising your kids. And they're getting baptized, interview them. Get to know them. Make sure you're talking about the same Jesus. Make sure they're not doing it because their big brother's doing it. Make sure they're not doing it because they get ice cream after. Don't do it. Just define the terms. And here's the best part. If they're an unbeliever, be sure you're talking about the same Jesus. Because to be honest, you can say you can say this quote, which I've heard before. Tell me about the Jesus that you hate. Tell me about the Jesus that you don't worship. I might not worship him either. They might have grown up with a false gospel, and you might be there to set them straight. Don't run away so quick. Define the terms. Make sure you're talking about the same Jesus. He came to save through faith. He came to bring judgment too. He came to suffer. That's Jesus. And the best part is Luke, he doesn't stop there. He really wants you to be certain. So he not only defines the mission of Jesus, he gives us overwhelming evidence that Jesus really is who he says he is. Point two. Two ways we can be certain that Jesus is authentic that we can defend the authenticity of Jesus. First, Luke gives us historical evidence all throughout the book. Let me share my favorite example, and it's from the birth of Jesus in chapter 2. I got to preach on this a long time ago. This is just the first part of it. 
In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, the city of Davis, uh, David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Now that sounded kind of fluffy. But that was Luke giving an orderly account of what happened. That's the orderly account that Luke promises at the beginning of the book. He cites witnesses, and he gives dates, and he provides hometowns. And here in Luke 2, he even connects the birth of Jesus to a census. You know Rome keeps their receipts. They want that census money. So Mary and Joseph, they were right here at this time in this place. Even Joseph is recorded here as a descendant of David, which if you remember the quote from chapter 1, is part of Jesus' ancestry. Luke goes out of his way to list this stuff time and time again. Cross-references, pieces of historical evidence, and witness after witness after witness. And the reason why is that Christianity is confidently public. It is public. The cards are on top of the table with Christianity. This is such a stark contrast to religions like Islam and religions like Mormonism, where all of their key figures, Muhammad and Joseph Smith respectively in those cases, Their foundations are private. Some angel visited me in a cave. That's their foundation. No witnesses. No confirmation. You've got receipts right here. And even more than that, Luke's evidence for Jesus was prophetic. He doesn't just look at the world around him for evidence. He looks backwards at history. Time and time again, Luke connects us back to books like Isaiah, showing Israel's sin, and yet holding up God's promises to send a Savior. For example, just as I mentioned in chapter 4, this was Jesus' first um, sermon, the one where they want to kill him at the end. Jesus and Luke remind Israel in that example of their continual sin and shows that they haven't learned their lesson. And they continue in sin, proving history right. And they prove history right, and they prove Jesus right by killing him. So what does this mean? Why all the prophecy? Nothing is new. God's people are guilty, yet they continue to live corruptly. Oppressing widows, killing prophets. While Jesus and the prophets before him are innocent, and yet they're allowed to die. In fact, in Jesus' case, he walks right into it. Mankind is full of sin and as Zachariah said in chapter 1, 
God is merciful. Most of all through Jesus. And Luke 24, which I cited earlier, that's when Jesus is resurrected. Right after the risen Jesus tells his disciples he had to suffer, he shows us why prophecy is so important. Because he walks back through the Old Testament and he shows them all time and time again how the Bible points to him. And in that is a challenge to the reader. See for yourself. Be convinced. Read the Bible. It's all right there. It always has been. So how does that apply? Well, be certain that the Bible collected over thousands of years and painstakingly translated and preserved by thousands of people so that you can get one for free really points to Jesus. Be certain that this grand narrative in the midst of all that, that God would allow little old you to be a part of it. And as I continue kind of that previous application, as you define Jesus with people, say you get to know somebody and they're telling you about the religion they believe or they don't believe or the Jesus they think they know and maybe something doesn't quite seem right. You can just hand them the Bible and say, could you show me where you got that? Don't be a jerk about it. Just ask them. Or just say, can we study the book of Luke? Can I show you what I've learned about Jesus? So you define it, but then you're defending it. Go to the text. It's right there. It proves itself. Evangelism is so little about you. So what happens then? You know, in this grand narrative, what is your part? Well, I've been giving hints to it all along. The third point is this. You declare the gospel of Jesus. You actually go out. This is perhaps the clearest evidence that you're certain about the things you've been taught. Because you can't keep news like this to yourself. You can't. Like if you can see a movie that's good and you won't shut up about it, you can talk about this. Besides that, declaration runs all the way through Luke. People are proclaiming what God is doing. I mean, it begins with angels declaring good news and a guy named Simeon in chapter 2 calling Jesus a light for revelation to the Gentiles. It's going out to them. And for glory to your people, Israel. And Jesus declares himself and his kingdom all through the book, even as he suffers. And then, as Jesus finally opens the eyes of his disciples to their mission, or to that mission, he gives them their mission in chapter 24. He says, thus it's written, as he opens their eyes, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that, here it is, repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. 
Jesus comes. He corrects everybody's understanding. He dies for it. Then he sends out the people whose eyes are opened to proclaim it to everybody else. Yes, even the enemies of Israel. But Israel too. So Jesus has brought a kingdom of salvation through faith. And yes, there's judgment on those people who reject this. But his disciples, that's us, armed with historical evidence and the entire Bible and the Holy Spirit with us, we proclaim the gospel. We say what Luke said to other people. That's proclamation. We're just repeating what somebody has already said. And we'll suffer for that too. If Jesus suffered for it, we will. Now, I've already told you what to say. But as I'm beginning to wrap up here, can I just give you a nuance as to how we say it, especially in light of suffering? Because right now, the how we say it, that's really important. There's a, there's a posture taken to proclamation in the book of Luke that we can't ignore. And it's in Luke 9. I don't know if you remember this story. It's kind of funny. The gospel is proclaimed in Samaria. And it's, it's kind of rejected. And here's what a few of Jesus' disciples say. They say, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. That's proclamation in a nutshell. Right there. Here's the posture, I think, that's right behind this. Here's the application as you think about how to talk to people. Hold the truth of the gospel tightly and hold the reception of it loosely. Don't get those mixed up. Preach it as it is, patiently, and if people spit you out, move on. And if they kill you, congratulations, you're a martyr. You get to go to heaven. In other words, here's what happens if you flip-flop those. If you hold the reception tightly and the gospel loosely, well, you might desire a positive reception so much that you just start watering it down. Jesus didn't come to judge people. Jesus came to make you rich. You heard that one before? Don't get so caught up in your pride also that you find yourself wishing that the enemies of God would burn. Don't call fire down on people if they reject you. Have you seen people doing this? Have you done this? Somebody rejects you or says, I don't believe the gospel. And you just see Christians or professing Christians, I might even add. So venomous. Cursing them. Hating them. Don't get so caught up in your own pride that you find yourself wishing that the enemies of God would burn. In short, Christian, please do not get tired of rejection because you've been accepted by God. Preach to the ends of the earth. Somebody rejects you, move on. The mission will be fulfilled.
You're a very small part of it. That's okay. You know, I think that's actually why communion is so necessary. It's a reminder that Jesus didn't get tired of serving us. He was faithful to hold the gospel so tightly that he valued his life far less. He was willing to die. He allowed himself to die so that you might live and that they might live. That's why we take communion. As we prepare to take communion, let me just pray for us. God, your message, your, um, the news of your kingdom, it is good news. And Lord, I can just miss that. I can view it as an obligation or, or I can view it like medicine, like I knew, I know it's good, but it just tastes terrible. I hate being rejected. I hate being hurt. Lord, would you sober me and remind me that judgment is coming? Would you help me to understand that the people that I talk to will stand before you and that I can intervene on behalf of Jesus and tell them about his mission of salvation? And I can go to scripture and I can prove it. But Lord, I can't open their eyes. And I think that is in a lot of ways why We must suffer because as we preach and people reject, it can get harder and harder and harder. But Lord, you open eyes. You know your own. You know who will accept and who will reject. Help us to hold the gospel tightly. Help us to remember your sacrifice. Lord, because as we fail, we need to cling to your kingdom of salvation harder than ever. We need to remember that you died to save us and that because of your faithfulness, we will be faithful. And because of your death, we will live. And many more may. Amen.